Welcome to 360 Real Time, a Steelcase podcast with behind the scenes conversations on the research impacting the places where people work, learn, and heal. I'm your host, Katie Pace, and I'm joined today with David Aiken, Managing Director of IDEO Products. IDEO has been a global design and consulting firm for more than 25 years. Now, David is leading a team helping identify innovation and measure it with a tool called Creative Difference. IDEO studied its archive of major projects along with external sources to land on six qualities it says are fundamental to any innovative company. Those are purpose, experimentation, collaboration, empowerment, looking out, that's knowing what's going on outside your industry, and refinement, or being able to execute on ideas. We caught up with David on the phone. David, thanks for joining us. Cool. Hi, Katie. Happy to be here. So as you start to measure all these factors, how do you help companies take advantage of what you're finding? The nice thing about having this data is we can actually say, given all the factors and where you lie on them, what are the one, two, or three that are going to help you best move the needle for your team, right? And so which are the one that historically through the data is is saying that if you can improve this, your teams are actually going to be that much more effective. And so it gets back to that point of focus, right? Leaders are really craving focus. And honestly, it's just more effective to do a few things really well and make that real impact for a team, then kind of move on to the next ones instead of spreading efforts thin and, and confusing people by trying to do too much at the same time. I just love this idea of quantifying this innovation and classifying it. And we recently talked to Tim Brown, your CEO, and he's a new member of the Steelcase Board of Directors. And he talked a little bit about how he can just tell by looking at the space, looking at the physical environment, if an organization is creative. And I wonder if how important do you find the work environment in relation to the principles that you discovered? That's a great question. And and again, we don't know which way it goes exactly, but we definitely do see that the most innovative organizations, their spaces do really represent that. And, you know, there's a number of things and and actually, you know, kind of knowing we were going to do this conversation, we kind of dug a little deeper into our base oriented data that we have related to creative difference. And we were actually pretty surprised how impactful it was or how correlated effective and energizing spaces are to the effectiveness of teams. Uh, A few specific things that we found out. One is that, well, so maybe it shouldn't be too much surprise, but but organizations that actually prototype effectively and have high experimentation scores have dedicated spaces to do it, right? So A, people realize that, hey, I actually need to do prototyping to do my job, and that B, there are spaces available to do it. You know, so a pretty A to B thing, but it is like you can't expect people to try things out and build new ideas and test them if you're not making the resources and spaces available. So that was, you know, a straightforward one, but one that definitely seems to have a big impact. We looked at a a kind of a bundle of factors, so whether the space reminds people of their customers, whether they feel that relevant technologies are available in the space and that they can sort of play with them. When we look at the companies who are in the 90th percentile of saying that those things do exist compared to those that are below the 50th percentile, then we see um, an improvement of the effectiveness of those teams of over 45%. So the teams working in those spaces that do represent customers, have room for prototyping and sort of highlight relevant technologies again, those teams are actually like much more effective than ones that are in spaces that, that don't do that. 
So we were, we were pretty shocked to see how big yeah. that impact was. I think you put it so simply, this idea that if you're going to ask your organization to prototype and to be creative and to be experimental, you have to have a physical space that supports that type of work. So if you're in a cubicle farm or if you're in a, you know, a more traditional office, you're not going to be able to prototype or experiment very well. When you saw those spaces that mm-hmm. allow people to experiment and prototype, like what were the, what do you think the characteristics of those spaces would or would be? Spaces that are truly built to sort of learn and tinker and try things out, they have a certain like warmth to them that you can tell yeah. that people are using the space to do a job beauty of the space is not the top priority. And those tend to be the teams that are most effective. You see the other types, which are either extremely buttoned up and clean, where it's sort of like the emphasis is on the image that you're trying to send out into the world. And then what we also see, you know, uh, <laughs> is spaces that are kind of, I say, they're almost like staged to be innovative, which is another thing you want to avoid, which is like people are like they're putting on the airs of innovation, but they're not actually using the space to do so. Sometimes those are hard to pick up on, but you'll see, you'll go there one month and the same stuff is up the, the whiteboard or on the inspiration boards as we're up a month ago, right? And so you got to kind of check, like, are, are people really using the space as intended? Because it gets to the point of, and there might be other issues, right? Because space alone isn't going to be the solution. It's like, well, do people have time to actually work in the ways that the space indicates or that the space was intended to be used. So there could be other factors in terms of the processes that people are encouraged to use or the incentives that leadership put in place for their workforce that might be impacting how that space is used, even if it is available. That's interesting. One of the things that we say is that, you know, the space should give you permission to be yourself and to do the work you need to do. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the cultural values that you've deemed important. Like, what have you noticed about an organization's culture that gives the permission for creativity or for this innovation process? For example, the ability to challenge the status quo or challenge the boss. Yeah. Like, I wonder, like, how have you seen those factors impact the work that you've done? We've definitely had quite a lot of organizations where, yeah, that people don't feel comfortable speaking up. And that definitely does hinder the emergence of new and sort of challenging ideas that often are those ones that hold the future of the company. But actually, the more common challenge we've seen is that people are comfortable debating the status quo, as in they're okay raising disruptive ideas in the abstract, yet they're very afraid to actually pick those ideas up and run, so to speak, or to be Mm. the one responsible for the failure should that idea not be successful. You know, it is a great first step to say that we have an environment where people can sort of debate, but, you know, you really want to create that environment where people can take an idea that, you know, it may not be successful, but hey, if that was true, that could be really interesting or a really strong differentiator for us. And you've got to make sure that people are comfortable, like picking up that ball, running with it in a sort of safe space. You can limit the resources and risk associated with that but to make it okay to to fail and even value that. So this idea of failure, fail fast, failure is great, we should accept it. It feels like there's a lot of discussion and niceties around all of that. But then when the rubber hits the road and you're spending money and you're on time and like, is it really okay to fail? (laughs) I mean, one, you know, one thing is, and, and there's just no easy answer to this is that, Organizations, they need to make the capacity both to nurture today's businesses and keep them running and optimizing those, 
but on also, you know, exploring the future. And there's just no shortcut to saying you need to make time to explore the future. Making your numbers quarter to quarter isn't helped that much by, by investing and nurturing the future, but eventually that's going to come back to bite you. you know, those are muscles that you don't want to have to build them all up when you see signs of trouble, right? When the current businesses start to fail or show t- signs of maturing or stagnating, you've got to have your next thing ready, right? And so you ideally want to get to that type of company, you know, the, the Amazons or the Googles of the world that get credit for saying, oh, like they're investing in their future. And we're excited about that because that is going to create growth. And we know that these companies are healthy for the long term. And again, I think I referenced other research has shown that companies that actually invest in research and design outperform the S&P or companies that don't on the S&P by over 200%. So, you know, ultimately, if you can get there, the data shows that it's going to pay off in an increased share price and increased performance. You made me think of an interesting question here as one of the things that your leaders and your founders have become very famous for saying is this idea that everyone is creative. There used to be this idea that only artists and musicians were creative, but actually, in fact, we're all creative. So I think we all know that and we all agree that and there's all some level of creativity that's required for our job. But when you're talking about innovation or creativity, I'm wondering in the work that you've done with organizations, do you think that to some extent we're all responsible, no matter what our job role is within the organization, for being creative and being innovative? Or do you think it's just a select few that are a group within the organization yeah. to say that's responsible really for innovation? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we are leaving that last industrial revolution where people are cogs in the machine, right? Where we're just executing a certain repeatable task over and over. Where technology has gotten today, those types of jobs are being eroded pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And what's being left is really creative problem solving. And I know that seems scary to some people, but it is true. Like, I mean, we've seen yeah. it over and over is that people do have the capacity to do that. And I think your point that you made earlier is, is fantastic, which is we have this artificial view that creativity is about, yeah, like art and painting and all these traditional things. But an accountant thinking about how do they make it easy for people to get their reporting in or modernize and make more real time the reporting that could exist within an organization. These are all creative challenges. Mm-hmm. And every role, I think, is migrating to that sense of instead of just keeping the wheels on the road, is thinking about what in my environment could be better. It doesn't have to yeah. be product innovation or marketing innovation, which people normally jump to. It can be process innovation. It can be serving internal customers. And really great companies, they kind of help people realize that and empower them with the toolkit and approach to actually get that done. And so that's a pretty good feeling. And so I have to admit, Toolcase is based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I grew up there. I lived there for four years working for the company. And then now I live in Chicago. So I work remotely for uh, an organization. So I'm wondering if you can just talk about some of the things that you found as it relates to distributed teams. Yeah, we had some pretty surprising results there. So, you know, also sharing a bit about how we work at IDEO. I mean, we're definitely like big advocates for teams working together in person in the same room and we put together project teams and we, you know, that really has worked for us. When we looked at the data across a lot of different companies, we didn't see such a clear-cut winner there in terms of co-located teams are that much more effective than remote teams. And actually what we found is that in bigger organizations, 
remote teams are on average actually a little bit more effective than those that are all in the same location. And so we were pretty surprised by that, to be honest. And I think we still have a little unpacking to do on the reasons, but we do have some theories that we've seen. And what we have noticed is that remote teams often do a better job of having a real process to kind of keep each other in the loop, to manage share, to collaborate in ways with software that has been searchable and referenceable in the future. So I think there's a little function of the fact that because it's a known challenge of how to keep those teams on the same page, that they actually adopt processes and methods and means to make sure that teams are on the mm-hmm. same page, even if they are remote. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, if I were here in Chicago and I never went back to Michigan, but I'm, I'm actually there quite frequently almost every other week, just because it is so important to be in the same room with people, if nothing else, just to really establish that trust, right? And the social cohesion Absolutely. that you can only build face-to-face. I do strongly believe that. And, I, and, and some of what our data has shown, too, is that teams that actually synchronize on a daily basis and actually mm-hmm. do that in a fair amount through working sessions, not just status updates. There's a tendency for a lot of teams, they do like meetings where it's like, I'm going to share what I learned and maybe we'll better do a bit of Q&A or feedback and then we'll go our separate ways and do our separate work streams. That's, it's very different than like really working, as you say, shoulder to shoulder on a challenge where we're really coming up with solutions together and working through the details and, and really working on the content together. And teams that do that are more effective. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, again, I'm going outside the data a little bit here and going to my experience, but it's a lot easier to do when you're face-to-face and in the same space. Within this tool here that you've created, are there any other surprising or impactful things that uh, you would want leaders to know? The power of exploring multiple ideas at the same time compared to organizations who either do, like, Let's put three sensible options on the table and analyze them to death. That's kind of one method that we see companies pursuing. A second being, you know, a little more aligned with the lead startup approach of like, get your best guess out there of your product and your business model, launch it, test it, and then iterate or pivot if you find evidence that your assumptions are false. That's sort of option two. Versus option three of actually take like five or more ideas at a time, test those with customers, and then iterate. If you take that bucket and compare it to the bucket of teams who use like those first two methods, those teams are 50% more effective and more likely to reach successful outcomes. And I think there's two real reasons that we've seen for that. One is this notion that like scientists, I don't really like this name, but they call it cognitive laziness. Um, and it's not really, it's not true laziness, but what it means is basically uh, when an idea is sort of yours for any pretty insignificant amount of time, and so I, I believe it's even in the realm of like a day or two, your brain is wired to protect it and to prove it right. Um, our brains have basically evolved to like prove that we're right to others. <laughs> and so wow. when we have the one option that is ours, we quickly lose context and objectivity in judging it. And secondly, from an external perspective, sharing one idea actually also radically decreases the quality of feedback that we get when we are trying to share it either with our peers or with customers. The other big one that I think was really interesting is, you know, and it comes back to this issue of empowerment and particularly related to hierarchy, um, Mm -hmm. but sort of the interactions between decision-making leadership and teams that are actually kind of doing the work, doing the research, doing the prototyping, coming up with the business plan, doing the analysis, 
the closer that those can be, and even to the degree that that leader is, you know, working and in the trenches with that team, or is playing a coaching role where the decision-making criteria or decision-making responsibility is with that team, the closer you can get those and the more empowered you can make those teams, the more effective those teams are actually going to be. You know, there's this tendency in a lot of organizations that sort of leaders have this uber perspective that they can really help judge this work. But the more that the decision maker gets sort of distanced from the real evidence and research and expertise that has sort of crafted a solution, the poorer those decisions get. And so it's really kind of the evidence that flat organizations or more flat organizations are much more effective and that you really have to kind of trust the people that are in the trenches doing the work to make smart decisions. And, you know, we're not saying leaders let everyone go rogue and and launch without any kind of scrutiny or oversight, but to the degree that you can say, hey, like barring certain criteria or lack of alignment with strategy, et cetera, that you as a team and the leaders of those teams are empowered to make decisions and decide what we're going to do, then, you know, that really energizes teams and tends, like you get people really using their best judgment and really coming up with great stuff. And again, we see those teams being like much more effective. Absolutely. I'll tell you, this is something that our organization has really been thinking a lot about and specifically our CEO. And I don't know, you know, going back to the physical environment, have you seen any changes in like the physical implications of that? Like where leaders have become more entrenched with their teams? Like, do you have any examples of that? Or It definitely doesn't look like, you know, the executive floor in a skyscraper that has all yeah. the fancy furniture <laughs> and yeah. everyone else is kind of down in the trenches below. You know, I think what we see in, in these types of organizations that leaders are, they're kind of walking around and seeing what people are, are up to and being involved in design reviews and, and, even, and even kind of rolling up their sleeves and diving in with teams. So anecdotally, I think that's what it's uh, looked like for, for some of these yeah. companies. So this data is really giving you a whole new way to help teams innovate. You know, we've just been observing how effective these things are for like decades now. And it's really yeah. been nice the last few years to just like dive into the data behind it and, and, you know, be learning ourselves too, right? I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that we know works, but, you know, there's a lot more to learn about the specifics of how to set up teams and how frequently they use different processes or across industries, what types of expertise are best brought together to work on projects. So, yeah, it's a treasure trove of kind of knowledge and data. We're excited. <laughs> David, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It was, it was a lot of fun. That was David Aiken, Managing Director of IDEO Products. You can hear more 360 real-time conversations and read more from David about IDEO's Creative Difference Tool and the six vectors for innovative companies at 360.steelcase.com.